0: It was was strange. It was the most high feeling of, yes, we did this, followed by, well, what do we do now? And then we all started coughing. And then our eyes started watering, and then our mouths started burning. And then we're like, what's that hissing? Tour of Idaho is something that I don't think you can top, and you probably shouldn't try to top it because it is so unique.
1: Hey guys, happy new year and welcome back to another episode of the podcast. I'm really excited to bring this one to you today. We've got Carrie Barton on the show, and she's here to talk to us about the Tour of Idaho. Last summer, 2019, Carrie became the first woman to complete this grueling, tough, technical 10-day ride through the entire state of Idaho, and I'm stoked to have her on the show to talk about it, so let's get right into it. Thanks for listening. All right, Carrie, thank you for coming on the show, and I want to jump right to the end of this thing. August 17th, 2019. Significant day, right?
0: yeah yeah that was uh, that was our tenth day.
1: okay, so August seventeenth now I'm not sure how all this rolls out on the tour of Idaho, but you're at the last checkpoint or the last waypoint you're there with your husband and and a friend.
0: Yeah, my husband uh, Dave and our friend Larry, um, and it's up at Sundance Mountain. That's the final the final waypoint on the tour, so just step outside of like Priest River area.
1: I want to know what's going through your mind because, in my opinion, I don't know how many people really know about the Tour of Idaho, but this is a pretty big accomplishment. So, I, you know, what's what's going through your mind and and what are your emotions like?
0: <laughs> um, you know, to be quite honest, it was it was a real mix. Um, so we got up there at about five fifteen in the evening, and um, it, it it was a mix of things. It was complete elation. Um, We had we had done it. We had made it that whole distance. Um, It was, uh, you know, realization of how exhausted you were. So, yes, I did this. And oh, my God, I'm so tired. But then there was also kind of this. um, I I don't want to use the word anticlimactic, but there was kind of this like this bubble that burst and you realized that everything you had lived for the last year during the preparation and the last 10 days in terms of just surviving the event was over. And we actually kind of like didn't know what to do. It, It was, it was strange. It was the most high feeling of, yes, we did this followed by, well, what do we do now? If that makes sense. Yeah. We had just lived it so hard for so many miles and so many hours that we we kind of just didn't know what to do when we were done. It, it seems silly, but it was it was just a really odd feeling.
1: Fair enough, fair enough. Um now that you've had a few months to reflect on it, what are your feelings and thoughts about the ride now?
0: I mean, honestly, it it is one of the most um it was one of the most grueling challenges that we could have thrown it ourselves. And the idea that we were able to make it onto that list of of that very short list, actually, if you look at it of people who have finished this, um, it's still a little surreal um, to to believe that we actually made it happen because the odds are just stacked so heavily against you every step of the way. Um, It's really easy for a tiny mistake to become a very, very big mistake very quickly out there. So, um, just a, a huge sense of pride, um, of, you know, sense of accomplishment. Um, it did take some time though, like you said, it's been like four months now since we finished. And the, the director of the event who coordinates it said, you probably won't really be able to put it into words very well until like after the first of the year, you just need some time to mentally process. And he was right. It, it definitely took some time to kind of really think about it and let it all sink in.
1: Okay. so before we get too much further into this, I'll probably have you kind of clue our listeners in on, on what exactly the tour of Idaho is. Cause like I said, not everybody is up to speed on that, but mm-hmm. could you give us your kind of description or explanation of, of what this adventure is all about?
0: Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, so the tour of Idaho, it's a off-road dirt bike adventure challenge. It's held every year. Um, it's a, it's a, Formal, informal event, if that makes sense. There's no entry fees. Um, You can attempt this challenge anytime, typically between July 15th and September 15th every year. Um, And it is a route that Martin Hackworth has put together from the southern border of Idaho, starting in um, Malad. And going up through some just amazing areas of Idaho, um, mostly off-road, some, you know, road connectors to get you into towns and and back out onto the trail. And this year the route was actually um, for the three-person team, and I can explain the differences between the solo two and three-person team later. The three-person team ended up putting in just over 2,000 miles over the course of 10 days. So you have to start – And be done with this in 10 riding days with one rest day in Pocatello. Um, You're given a series of waypoints that you have to then, um, using a route book, interpret into a correct route. It's um, followed via, you know, personal locator beacons. You have to record GPS tracks and submit these for final approval to be awarded a finisher number. And there's a number of challenges along the way. So each day there's a challenge section you can opt to take, which is either a significantly longer route or a significantly more technical route. Um, You have to complete the number of challenge sections equal to the number of people on your team. So the bigger your team, the heavier the penalty in terms of challenge points. There's a number of um, just daily challenge points. You have to find specific lookouts. You have to go to a a geographical feature and take a photo that you were there as proof and and upload that when you have some sort of signal. So there's a lot of components. There's the ride. There's, uh, you know, making sure you've hit all your checkpoints, making sure you've done your challenge points and your challenge sections. And then just also it's completely self-supported. You don't have any chase trucks. You're not allowed any chase trucks. You're not allowed to have gear caches. Um, you have to source your gas, source your food, and source source your lodging all along the way for the whole route. So there's a lot of components. Um, and this event's been going on for about 14 years now. And over the course of 14 years, um, this year we hit, just shy of seventy finishers, so sixty-nine people have finished this event in fourteen years.
1: Just a handful of people every year.
0: Yeah, like maybe five to seven is normal. Yeah.
1: Okay. So I'm. I'm yeah, not
0: many people. So
1: it, I'm hearing uh, like uh, perseverance, navigation. Uh, there, there's a lot of things rolled up into one here, too, right? I mean, you're not. You don't just. Yeah. You don't just yeah. have the luxury of you downloading know. a route and and make it on the trails you got to navigate your way through you got to hit checkpoints verify your location yeah. and if you miss a waypoint or something you may make it to the end but you may ultimately not be a a finisher either right
0: yeah absolutely um you know there's there's certain mandatory checkpoints and then there's some that you can gain extra points so you can build a buffer into your total so if you missed a waypoint um you may be penalized but you do have have the potential if you're cognizant of what's going on that you missed it. Um, you can be penalized. You can ring into the the race director or the event director, sorry, and um, and say, hey, I missed a checkpoint or I got off route. I had this problem, um, and you can come up with a plan to make it up. So you may be assessed an extra challenge section, which. You know, some of these days are already incredibly long, and if you have to start making up points because of mistakes, you just stack the odds that much further against you. So, um, typically, a clean run is almost the only way to make it through this thing.
1: You're not just doing a dual sport right here, right? I oh, think no. This, this route is dominated by technical single track, right?
0: Yeah, it's a lot of technical single track. Um it, it's oftentimes mistaken for a dual sport ride. Like, oh, it's like, you know, backcountry discovery route. You know, I can do it on a, a big bike. Um it really is plated dirt bikes that are incredibly trail prepped. Um this isn't a this isn't a dual sport ride. There are sections that you are in transfer, gravel roads, little pavement here or there just to get you into some towns. Um, when, when it is a road, sometimes it's classified as a Jeep road. And yeah, at one time it probably was a Jeep road, but it hasn't been maintained for a really long time. Um, and some of the single track is, is high skill level, um, serious, risky stuff. Like there were whole sections of trails that I remember just telling myself in my head, don't dab, don't dab, don't dab, because the trail is so narrow and there's nothing to dab to like you're, you're a hundred feet up off a precipice and you're on a single track trail on a fully loaded bike, big tank, gas bags, um, you know, giant loot bags. And you have to be able to get that big loaded dirt bike through some pretty technical terrain and spots. Um, there, there, there's some uh, areas of high exposure I would say.
1: Yeah. When I think about the tour of Idaho and obviously I haven't ridden it, but I spent plenty of time there. I think of, um, the exposure, Uh, I think salmon river, (laughs) Uh, I don't know if you if you rode any of the trail along the salmon, but I did see that you uh you guys we were in the salmon
0: area. Yeah, yeah. I saw
1: that you guys were in shoop, um which you know, there's some roads down there in the bottom of all that, and then every mm-hmm. people aren't aware. It's it's either straight up or straight down in that area. Yeah. So that's kinda of what I think of. I think of the exposure. Yeah. Seems like a great time, but for somebody who's sketched out by heights like me, probably not the best uh combination. <laughs>
0: Yeah. We were in Shoop. So Shoop actually used to be a, an official tour stop um, there at the Shoop store. And um, unfortunately, that business went out um, a couple years back. But, you know, there's this store there. It used to have some cabins. It actually still has like the original, like, I don't know, I think it's like, 1918 gas pumps out in front that used to be functional just until a couple years ago. So we actually stopped there on day six and, and just looked around a little bit because we had always, you know, we obviously, you know, you do the tour, you watch the Jimmy Lewis video and that was always just kind of this iconic thing. And, um, it's, you're right. It's this nice little paved winding road or gravel winding road right along the salmon and most people don't realize the trails up above there are actually really sketch. There's some tough stuff. Um, day six actually was one of my favorite days. It just you kept throwing challenges at you, um, you know, getting up to uh, uh, what's that lookout up above there that we got to? Just some of the you're right, the descents straight up, straight down, rocks, side hill. Um, so you have to be pretty comfortable. Um, creeping around some some pretty uh pretty steep, pretty loose, pretty high exposure trails for sure.
1: Okay, so I obviously have not ridden the tour, but my assumption is you continue on north in some fashion from Shoop and ultimately end up on the Magruder Corridor somewhere. And I saw your photo from Burnt Knob. I was up there a couple of years ago and I thought I saw the trail coming up to Burnt Knob. And not going to lie, that looked pretty gnarly. Not sure if I'd want to head up that trail by myself.
0: Yeah. So that's, um, gosh, that was, uh, I want to, I'm trying to remember the stats correctly because it was just silly how steep it was to get up there. Um, I think it says you gain a thousand feet of elevation every mile for five miles is what I recall. Um, And, uh, oh, I'm thinking of Stein Mountain, actually. Stein Mountain Lookout is the one I'm thinking of. But Burnt Knob is a really rocky ascent up to the top, and it's super steep with some switchbacks. Stein Mountain was um, the, the end of day six, right before we got out to North Fork. And that climb, you get to the bottom of it, and you know where you have to go, and you're looking up just going like, I can't even see where the lookout is. This is so long and so steep. And you just have to point the bike, bury the throttle and hope you make it up because you're just climbing for miles at that point on this little rocky single track. And if you may, if you don't make it, you're almost guaranteed to have to go back down quite a ways and get another run at it. Um, so stuff like that, like you've already ridden, I think on day six, we'd already ridden at that point, probably 170 miles of really tough single track, variety of trails And then right at the end, you have to go up to this lookout and you have to make this just silly hard climb before you know you can go down and get some food for the day. So there was always something every day that was like, you know, that's going to be the mountain for the day or that's going to be the challenge for the day. And um, it was just relentless. Every day had that. Day six wasn't unique. Day six was one of the harder days and probably one of the funner days. But every day came with its own unique um, set of challenges for sure.
1: Okay. So I think we've laid the foundation here. Um obviously you don't just show up and do this ride. This isn't your average adventure ride or backcountry discovery route. So what possessed you guys to get out there and, and tackle this thing?
0: Um, well, I mean that actually kinda goes back a little bit to some of our history. So um we've all been riding together for years and actually, um, Larry and Dave have been my pit crew for all of my 24 hour racing and my ultra racing. So, I mean, we, we selflessly or they selflessly travel around and stand in the pits for days on end watching me go in circles and do all it's, it's really there. It's pretty impressive that they've done this for so many years Um, we've done, I think three, 24 hours, probably four or five, 12 hours and a handful of like six plus hour events. And they stay up all night. They're in the pits all night. They're taking care of my food, my mechanical stuff, you know, checking tires, checking the bike, checking me, making sure I'm somewhat functional by the end of the thing. And we kind of like got to this place where we wanted to do something. We wanted to have an adventure like that, but where we could all be together riding. Um, we've gone and done some cool things with like the 24-hour racing, but they're just sitting around. I'm the one that's getting to go do the event. So um, Larry actually, I think, had brought it up to us like, oh, hey, check out this video of this thing that Jimmy Lewis did, and we watched it years ago and we're like, oh, that looks cool, but it never really, you know, stuck out as anything we wanted to do. And for some reason, a couple years ago, we revisited this idea, and something about it at that point just clicked. Like, wow, yeah, I want to go do this. Um, So we kind of started preparing as a team and um, we thought about doing it for quite some time. And then when we actually decided that we were going to make the attempt, we probably spent a year uh, preparing for it. Yeah. There's a lot that goes into it.
1: (laughs) Yeah. That, that leads me to my next question. Uh, What are the types of things you guys had to do uh, ultimately to prepare and, and train, you know, kind of for an endurance ride like this?
0: Yeah, there there was a lot that went into it. Um, there's obviously gear component. You have to procure a lot of stuff. Um, you need you know bags for the bikes, uh, GPS navigation, locator beacons. Every piece of gear that you select is going to make or break your day out there. So just gear prep alone took a long time. Um, obviously, there's the prep on the bikes. So getting all the bikes outfitted for the tour. Um, You know, making sure the placement of everything is correct, making sure the fitting of your bags is correct, making sure they're packed correctly. Um, That definitely took some time. And then for us, we really, really focused heavily on fitness and ride time. So we put in a ridiculous amount of hours on the bikes and not just, oh, we're going to go out east and just blast miles in the desert. We were loading up our tour bikes and going and doing the, you know, Devil's Head ISDE course plus 30 miles for good measure on our tour bikes. Um, and we were doing rides like that every week for for months on end. So we would go 100, 150 miles of off-road single track. Um, we were riding up in the Tillamook a lot because we can get into some areas that had some exposure. And to feel what it was going to be like to have those big heavy bikes in areas where – um, the consequences of, of dabbing are you go down side hill. So a lot of ride time. Um, we were all in the gym. We all three of us had a really rigorous fitness schedule that we were adhering to. Um, Dave and I actually have built a gym at our place. Um, Larry was even hiring a personal trainer at times. And yeah, we were serious. Like we... We don't mess around when we decide to do something. We go all in. Um, We've always been that way. We've been that way with the 24 hour racing. Um, You know, every one of us has a goal and and a role that we have in those events, and we better all perform. That includes me, that includes the pit crew. So, um, when it comes to this kind of stuff, we're actually a pretty well oiled machine. So, we had the fitness, we had the bike prep, gear. Um, ride time, riding in areas that would challenge us on the big bikes. But then you have the route planning. The route planning is hours and hours of your life for weeks. Um, because if you're doing it right, you can, you can remember that route almost off the top of your head. Um, we, I remember tracking it in Google Earth at ground level multiple times, like the whole thing. Um, we had, you know, different computer monitors set up with, you know, the route book, Google Earth, um, the Idaho trail maps, and cross-referencing all the different information to build um, to build our route and know for sure where we were going to be every day. Um, that almost took more time than anything. I mean, I remember sitting down. It was kind of like I had two jobs for a while. I'd do my day job. I'd come home. I'd go to the gym for two hours. I'd eat something real quick. And then I'd sit down at the computer and we'd route plan until 10, 11 o'clock at night every day for, you know, five days a week. And then we'd be out riding on the weekends. So it was all consuming. Like we didn't really do anything but tour of Idaho, it seemed like for a year.
1: You know, it, it's funny that you bring up the, the Google Earth stuff. You know, I've literally had hundreds of people ask me how I create tracks and, and routes and places that I've never been, but I, I use Google earth too and Google maps. And ultimately I roll those things into some form of a track, but you know, a a lot, you do a lot of map study and and ultimately you end up in places that you've looked at on the computer so much that you feel like you've been before and you know, the terrain so well, it's, it's weird how, how that ultimately works out.
0: Well, and, and did you have that? Have you ever had that feeling where, um, you, you haven't seen pictures of where you're going to be, but you get to a specific section of the day and you've looked at it so much on the map and on the topo and on Google Earth that you get there and it looks familiar, even though you've never seen it.
1: Like, yeah.
0: yeah, but you haven't. <laughs> but you have in your mind many times. Yeah,
1: that's weird. Um, Okay, so if I was going to ride the Tour of Idaho, this is the group I'd want to ride with because you guys don't mess around. Um, I'm curious what, what bikes you guys chose to uh, to do this on.
0: Okay, uh, yeah, so um, early on we decided that we all wanted to make sure that we were on the same um, uh, you know body style bikes. So we all rode KTMs. Um, we all wanted um, the bikes to be similar so that we had to minimize the amount of spare parts we had to bring. So, um, I was running a 13 350 EXC, uh, Larry, I think had a 14 350 EXC and then Dave had a 14 450 EXC. So we were all on, uh, similar bikes. Um, Larry and I almost on identical bikes other than the year. Um, and that afforded us the ability to really pare down, um, the tools we were bringing obviously you know there's some kind of ktm specific stuff that you need to have um but also just you know one shifter fits all of our bikes wrap that in some tube material zip tie it to the frame somewhere you know um we really could minimize what we were bringing because we all had the same bike um and that was pretty intentional um the other thing for me is is that uh you know, I was kind of apprehensive to go in with a little bit older bike, but it was pretty low hours. I actually bought it, you know, as a, as a new to me used bike with like 10 hours on it or something. So it was it was pretty fresh, but that vintage KTM was one of the lowest standover height bikes because I mean, obviously listeners are not going to appreciate um, my lack of height. So the other thing is I'm actually a pretty short person um, and that 13 model Um, that body style of the KTMs was one of the shorter standover height bikes. In addition to the fact I still had to lower the bike an inch to even get my tippy toes to the ground. So um, there was a couple things that went into that decision. Um, You know, Some comfort for me just in my lack of leg length. And um, we all wanted to be on the same type of bike so we could minimize what types of uh, supplies we were bringing.
1: Okay. Yeah. I was looking at your photos. I thought maybe you had you had lowered that bike. Uh, for our listeners, how how tall are you?
0: So I am, on a good day, I'm 5'4", which doesn't seem that short, but I only have a 28-inch inseam.
1: Okay, yeah. That's where it's at. I don't know what's <laughs> up with, K, with, with KTM these days, but yeah, if you're uh, struggling in the inseam department, it's tough to ride one of their bikes without lowering it.
0: You know, honestly, it's almost tough to ride any bike without lowering it anymore. Um, for someone that size, um, especially for this type of ride, like my my woods racing bike and the the bike that I did the twenty four the last twenty four on is a um eighteen two fifty two stroke KTM, and it sits a little taller than my three fifty, but with that style of riding, I'm not it's not as big of a deal. You're not on the bike as long, you're not having to stop as much, um, so it really just wasn't it's not as big of a deal for me on like the woods bike. So I don't have to lower the bike as much and they sit a little taller anyways, now the newer gens. So, um, but yeah, for this, I really wanted to just be able to come to a stop, get the feet down easy. I mean, cause again, there you let the bike get away from you and you could be a hundred feet down a side hill in a matter of seconds. So.
1: Did your group have any issues with exposure? Cause I know that's, that's one of the uh, the topics of discussion that gets brought up quite a bit in the group.
0: Yeah, we were really lucky. Um, we had one. <laughs> we actually had um, we had ourselves a day on day three. It was quite a day. Um, we did have one bike go off. Luckily, it didn't go off very far. Um, it, and it wasn't the bike that went off that was the problem. So. Um, you know, you've spent time out in Idaho, Um, you know that there's areas of Idaho that you're going to run into some wildlife. So it's recommended that you carry bear spray with you. So day three, um, it was a grind. It was some really technical trail. Day three was going from Arco um, over Arco Pass, and then you end up ultimately at the Smoky Bar store. Long day, a lot of technical stuff. It was fun, though. We were having a great day. And um, remember I mentioned that whole solo two-person, three-person variant situation? Well, the three-person teams actually are penalized with longer routes on a lot of the days of the tour. So day three was one of those days. And we got some—we got within about 10 miles of Smoky Bar Store. We're feeling awesome. We've had a great day. And we know there's just a couple more trails we have to do and we're home free. Um, and we looked the trails up, you know, it it sounded like they were going to be difficult, but we weren't too worried about it. Um, (laughs) we, we were really surprised when we got onto them. Um, really narrow boulder fields right along the Smoky River, um, like Erzberg style, Carl's dinner style boulder fields, (laughs) wet boulder fields, because they're right next to a river. (laughs) And, um, so we're getting pretty tired. We had, you know, big bikes. We'd already ridden a lot that day. And Larry was leading at that point. And I see him go up just a little rise and then around a hook on the, on the trail. And at this point we're maybe 30 feet above the river. And, uh, I just, I watch him lean in and clip that inside peg and just tumble like three, four times down the side hill. And I just immediately threw my bike over to the bank and started to slide down the scree because he had actually landed at the bottom with his bike on top of him. And I was like, oh, you know, this is this is an issue. I'm worried, like, the, I don't see his head. His head is under the bike. So I'm I'm anticipating that we have an injury that we're dealing with now. So I run down there and Dave comes up the trail behind me and he throws his bike and he starts to run down the scree. And we pull Larry's bike off of him and he jumps up and he's totally fine. And we're like, how did we get so lucky? And then we all started coughing. And then our eyes started watering. And then our mouths started burning. And then we're like, what's that hissing? So he had actually ruptured his bear spray canister on the way down the hill. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. So um, we got dusted in a 12-ounce can of grizzly spray.
1: Oh, no.
0: Oh, it was awful. (laughs) It was the most awful thing. I, I can't even begin to describe. It just felt like you'd you'd taken a bath in Tabasco sauce or something. It was so bad. So so as soon as we realize what's happening, we all like scramble back up onto the trail, and then we're like, "Well, crap! His bike is still down there. <laughs> what are we gonna do?" So we're all wearing like neck buffs and stuff. So we like we pull our neck buffs, buffs over our faces and we put our goggles on, and we we like okay, run down, somebody grab the bear spray canister and toss it as far as we can because it's still spraying. It's like a slow leak and there's, there's plenty in there still. So we run down there one person grabs it out of the holster and, and tosses it way down the trail. Um, and then we just, at that point, we had to get to work because it's at this point dark. Um, it was late in the day. And we are still on a very, very steep, very narrow side hill trail. And we got now still about five miles to go. So we stomp a path. We managed to muscle the bike back up on the trail and get going again. And that's when all the river crossings started. So, yeah, and it was a good season this year for for snowmelt. So we crossed that trail, continued through multiple boulder fields, Chris crossed. So we started crossing the rivers in the dark. Um, the water level at that point was probably groin high for me. So we're waiting probably, I think we crossed the river like 10 times that night, back and forth. The trail just weaves back and forth down this canyon across this river. And I think we made it, you know, luckily we had helmet lights. Um, one of the things with the river crossings is if you just have a headlight mask light, it shines the water over the top of, or the, shines the light over the top of the water. You Can't really get any depth into the water to see what you're dealing with in terms of rocks. So we all had um, Oxbow Voyager helmet lights that we were carrying for emergency backup. So we all threw those on and aimed them down so we could see down into the water and see what we were coming up against. But at that hour of the night, where it's groined water it's almost into the air box nobody wanted to risk riding a bike across so we we walked every bike across each one of those river crossings all 10 of them and I think we ended up getting out of that trail and down the road to the smoky bar store at about 10 o'clock at night we were soaking wet we were covered in bear spray we were freezing cold at that point because the river was not warm even though it was august um Bear sprayed, filthy, cold, covered in river sand, just not having a good day. And the people at the Smoky Bar had actually waited up for us. So it was the the owner, there's a woman named Kaylin Dennis, and she's amazing. Um, Her main uh, helper slash friend there is a woman named Jenny Roundtree. And then this little bar full of locals who had all heard, you know, well, the team with the girls coming, are they going to make it? So they're all waiting up for us drinking, like. Let's, let's watch what happens here. We finally pull up and all these people come out and they're just like, what happened? And so we, we get dry. They, you know, she lights up. This is all in, like an off the grid store. There's no electricity. They're running off generators. So they get a cabin for us. They get some propane heaters so that they can get our gear dry. They have food waiting for us. A hot dinner's waiting. And then all the guys are like, well, where'd you just ride in from? And so they have a big map on the wall and everything, so we explain the route. And one of the guys looks at me and he's like, they made you ride that? I was like, yeah, why? He's like, oh, we call that wet king of motos and just starts laughing. He's like, we don't ride dirt bikes on that. That's like where the trials guys go. I was like, oh, funny, funny, (laughs) Martin Hackworth. Funny guy.
1: Yeah, just just another day on the Tour of Idaho,
0: huh? Just another day on the Tour of Idaho. And that was only a route for the three-person team. So the two-person and the solos didn't have to do any of that that day. So uh, it was it was tough. It was fun. I look back now and I'm like, it was fun. But
1: It was fun, but, you know, maybe being a three-person team, were you the only people that actually rode that trail this year?
0: Nobody else rode that trail but us this year. Yeah.
1: No, you guys are you guys are so lucky. Oh,
0: I I consider myself <laughs> lucky for that. You know what I do? It was it was a big learning experience. It was a opportunity for um, growth and self reflection, and um, I can still taste air spray sometimes.
1: You know, you you bring up the the Smoky Bar store and talk to people about Idaho quite a bit and riding in Idaho, and one of the things I think. That Oregon is missing that, that Idaho has that makes it so magical our places like the smoky bar store I don't feel like we have these remote towns that you can ride into and experience what, what I would deem you know like old school hospitality I just feel like we don't have that anymore and, and that's really part of the magic of of Idaho and even breaching into Montana a little bit do you agree with that
0: yeah, we I, I totally agree. And and one of the things that um that Martin kind of told us before we left is you're gonna get out to some of these places and when you arrive at your destination, it is gonna feel like an oasis. You are going to step into Hotel California and it's gonna be really hard to leave. And and honestly, that I think is is part of where a lot of teams have problems is they're so tired, they're so worked, they've had a bad day like that. And the the place they end up almost seems like just this like refuge. It's this magical place that's taking care of you and it's comfortable and warm and there's friendly faces and you kind of don't want to get up the next day and get back on the bike. And he was totally right. And I think what you're saying plays into that. You know, these people stayed up super late. They had food ready for us. And, you know, I didn't know any of them, but they, they come out. They're like, well, do you need anything? Do you need tools? Do you need, um, gas, oil, are the bikes working? Can we help you in any way? Like, just so welcoming. And all the while, you know, lantern light is is what they're sitting in and having a, a beer by, because there's the generators are off for the night. And there's, you know, a, a propane heater, outdoor shower to get clean in. And it was just, it was incredible. You know, that store actually is, um was a family owned business from, you know, decades and decades back. And Kalen just recently bought it and revived it. And it's this amazing outpost. Um, and we ran into that stuff the whole route. Um, all these weird little towns that, you know, there's a house, a post office, and maybe a gas station. Or, you know, um, we, we ended up out at, um, you know, Powell Ranger Station and Loxa Lodge. Again, there's really nothing around, but just kind of these cool places that you just don't get to experience that often. And the Further out we got, the more of that kind of stuff that, that we we got to experience, which is really incredible. That's part of the concept of the tour is is it's this incredible challenge, but it's almost designed to keep you away from the bigger cities because, you know, some of those small towns, the tour business actually really helps out a lot in terms of keeping some of those places open.
1: Sure, yeah, I I think the uh, the the people at uh, Backcountry Discovery Routes have the same thing in mind. Um, yeah and drag you through a lot of small towns when when maybe a, a bigger city is nearby, and sometimes that's frustrating um logistically trying to plan things yeah. out and get gas or find a good place to stay, but at the same time yeah. um,
0: find tires yeah. you know we had to change tires halfway through the tour and um finding a place that actually could stock decent tires was really tough um and and again, you know we could have easily dropped into a big city and and found some tires, but you know, there's not as much there's not as much adventure in that. You know, you can you can get tires almost anywhere, but try to find them out in the middle of nowhere Idaho. That's part of the challenge. So, yeah. So I appreciate that about it. Definitely.
1: What are a couple things that you took with you on the ride that you would consider indispensable if you were going to do it again?
0: Oh, man. Um God, that's kind of a tough one. We we, we ran so lean on supplies. That was part of the goal is, you know, the, uh, I'm, I'm going to quote Harold here, but go light, go fast, go far. We tried to take as few products as possible. Um, the clothes on our back, um, a mid-layer, a rain jacket, you know, that's, that's kind of all the clothing we had with us. I'd say one of the most essential items was probably um, my, my stowaway jacket. I couldn't have done without that. Um, we were running in a variety of conditions, so we'd wake up some mornings and it would be below freezing, and then by the eve or afternoon, you're up in 90 degree temperatures. Oh, and then in the afternoon, you might get a thunder shower, so you're going to get soaking wet. So we all ran, or um, we all brought with us a climb packable stowaway jacket, which is just a really—it's a lightweight but heavy-duty Gore-Tex shell—and we were able to use those as a wind block were able to throw them on if we were getting into some rain um they were just a little extra warmth with with that mid layer if we needed it so i'd say definitely my my rain jacket was a big one i wouldn't have gone without that um outside of that we didn't have a lot of other there, well there was pretty much no luxury items i think i brought a hat which was um very valuable at times and uh i brought i had uh, kate's real food sent me this really cool hat before i left and um that became like my go-to because this is the thing so not a lot of women have tried this and I don't think a lot of guys appreciate how difficult it is to deal with a head of hair on something like this so like I was using my hat to kind of like stuff my gnarly dreaded hair into at times when I'd be off the bike I mean you, you you just realize like wow I haven't brushed my hair for three days huh That's going to be rough when I have to actually try to try to get it clean again, like stuff like that. But you're just so focused on survival that you, you just, you kind of don't care at all. That's like the least of your worries. So throw a hat on it. You're good to go. You know? Yeah. So I think my, uh, my hat and my, uh, my stowaway jacket. So one really essential thing and then one kind of luxury item.
1: Okay. Okay did you guys carry a saw and i've also seen yeah. um mm-hmm. there's some sort of device that people carry to basically winch their bike up if they were oh, to go off an edge yeah. did you guys that yeah, so
0: end? um i guess the saw was pretty vital now that you mentioned that we we did get into some sawing on day 6 um we got pretty lucky with blowdown but we did have to saw our way through some stuff so we we all carried the silky big boy saw um and those just make incredibly fast work of down trees and you can cut some fairly large stuff. Um, And then we also did carry a bike recovery kit. So a bike recovery kit is just essentially a a fancy block and tackle with climbing rope. Um, So you can, if you get a bike off side hill, you can essentially just set up a rig to help winch the bike back up onto the trail. We got really lucky. We didn't have to use it. Um, The one bike that we did have go down Um, There was enough scree that we were able to kind of just kick a path and and get it back up without deploying the the recovery system. Um, But I have seen tour teams end up with bikes hundreds of feet off the trail, and there's no way you're going to get it back without one of those things. And um, the interesting thing about Idaho is you're legally required to recover lost rigs. So if you have a bike go over, you'll get fined if you don't get it back. So I mean, You can't because they'll find it and they will find you. So that, and I mean, some of these times, like if you lose a bike, you're not walking out. It's, it's too, you're too far from anything to even think about walking out. So recovery kits, definitely key. There were some areas that we were in that there's no way to get a bike back without it. There's just, it's physically too steep. So.
1: Okay. Did, did you guys have to carry gas? I thought there used to be a section Maybe it was day two out across the sand or the desert that was pretty long and required some supplemental gas. Is that, is that correct?
0: Yeah, that's um, day two. Um, so uh, day two is Pocatello out to Arco. And we actually, there's enough places, enough little spots you can get gas that we did not gas bag that day. But getting into um, some of the later days, so um, six, seven, and eight, there's some long stretches. So we had to gas bag. So we we used the Giant Loop uh, fuel bags, and we would – we had planned this all out based on, you know, looking and building our route book and everything. Um, The longest contiguous stretches where we wouldn't have gas, we'd plan the last place we could get it. And then we'd fill up the bags. We'd strap them on over the Mojave bags, and we would carry as much gas as we could. Um, One of those days for sure was um, – oh, gosh, getting outside – Elk City. So that was um, day seven, day seven. Um, North Fork to Lowell, the only place you can get gas there is Elk City. And then once you get to Lowell, you have like another 100 miles plus before you can get gas again. So there's no place in Lowell to get gas anymore but that's the, that's the place you can get to for the night. So we had to gas bag up on day seven and then start day eight fully loaded with gas to make it through those legs for sure. Um, day seven turned into a grind too. There was, um, we got into Elk City and, uh, had to do some rerouting because there was a massive landslide. So that day ended up just to get around that landslide. We had Had to add about 60 miles of of a variety of road and trail to get around this and get into Lowell. Um, We were lucky that we figured it out, though, because there was actually a team of two and a soloist that were en route in the two days before us. And they were not so lucky to have figured out that there was a slide. We actually figured it out because one of those teams actually posted back to a Facebook page that there was a slide that you had to go around And um, they actually tried to go through it and had themselves an incredible adventure. Um, I think they got into Lowell at like 1.30 in the morning. Um, One of them had broken out their headlight. One of them had broken their helmet light. The other one, I think, broke another light. So they were like coming in two bikes at 1.30 in the morning to Lowell with like one factory headlight or something. So there's just stuff like that, you know, everything's going great, you got your plan, you've got your gas for the day, and then, oh, I have to reroute. Awesome. I hope I have enough gas. The soloist actually, I think, ran out before Lowell and had to um, had to beg some gas off a campsite somewhere in the middle of the night.
1: So did you get gas at Elk City?
0: We did, yeah.
1: Did you go in the store there? Oh, yeah. <laughs> That's a pretty cool little spot.
0: Elk city had some very interesting characters. I must say (laughs) just super friendly, super like interested people. Like what are you guys doing out here with your bikes? And where are you going today? Huh? Okay. So it was, yeah, it was a cool, it was an interesting place. And that was a tough day for me. I, day seven was like my low point. So when I got to Elk city, I was actually getting like, um, I think I had had like, Because we'd been on the Magruder that day and we were just getting, we'd started off with freezing cold and then we were just in the sun all day. And by the time I got to Elk City, I was kind of like in that dry heave place and was really like kind of having one of those, oh my God, is this the end of me for the tour? And just like, I forced myself to get back on the bike and ride it out and somehow, you know, made it through the rest of that day. But God, I was real happy to get to Lowell because I was exhausted. That was my low day for sure, was day seven.
1: Yeah, understandable. Hey, uh, uh, listeners, if you're ever in Elk City, if you're riding the BDR, for instance, or the Tour of Idaho, the little store there slash restaurant slash slash gas station is a pretty good spot to stop. And obviously there's not, not a lot else going on anywhere nearby.
0: Yeah, and a lot of good cheeseburgers, man, along the whole route.
1: That's important.
0: I, I had a lot of cheeseburgers, <laughs> like Pickles. Pickles and Arco. If you're in Arco, go to Pickles. Such a good burger there.
1: Hmm, I have to check yeah. that out. Yeah, very good. Um, wildlife. Did you run into anything? See any bears, moose?
0: Oh, we. You know, we did. We saw a lot of wildlife. Um. We did see a bear, actually, I think, up around day eight, but it had zero interest in us, and it just crossed the trail and just kept booking so um you know, which was good we were, We were down a can of bear spray at that point, so <laughs> and then we actually did see an elk um big male elk on um. Day two, actually, dropping out of the hills onto kind of the valley floor, we came out of this trail, dropped onto a a gravel road,
1: Mm -hmm.
0: and on the ridge right above us, maybe, I don't know, 50 yards, there's just this massive male moose standing there. And, um, you know, we were all told, you know, watch out for the bears, you know, there's grizzlies up North, but if you see a moose, just get out of there because they are mean and they will charge you. So we did see a moose. We saw a bear, um, all the other kind of normal wildlife. Um, we got charged by a really pissed off sheepdog.
1: Oh yeah. We had a, we had a run in with those too, uh, this past year. Where'd you, where'd you meet your sheep dogs?
0: Somewhere outside Elk City, actually. We came around this Jeep road just booking, and all of a sudden we're in, like, a herd of, like, 300 sheep. Like, boom, they just, like, stood up and scattered. And then this big old sheepdog just comes in and is like, God, get out of here. And we we're just like, whoa, where did this all come from? So big, angry sheepdog. Um, you know, the coyotes, foxes, a couple skunks, the usual.
1: Yeah, I rode into uh, out of Featherville last year. I rode into a herd of sheep, annoyingly, and there was two big sheep dogs with that herd. And uh, I rode by one of them, and I clearly could tell he did not want me in the area. And yeah, I felt like he was as big as my seven ninety, not a small animal. <laughs> like,
0: no, no, they were they were big. they were just these big white hairy dogs, and um, they were they were all business actually they were not like the cute little farm dog you think of herding some uh some small livestock around these were out there to do a job and they didn't want us anywhere near where their sheep were
1: Yep just got to give them got to give them the room uh, switching gears a little bit i was curious did quitting ever cross your mind over the course of the 10 days while making your way through Idaho No No it wasn't it an
0: option Yeah you got you got it out and that's again, kind of going back to that team dynamic, we all have a job when we're doing something like that. And we are not going to disappoint each other. It's just not going to happen. So there was, there was never even a moment of thought about quitting. We were going to, if it took us, you know, riding all through the night, we were going to do it. So we were highly motivated. And um, <laughs> you get out there and you want it so bad. It's been something you have been thinking about for so long and you want it so bad. And if you want it bad enough, you can, you can really bury a lot of discomfort. And I think we all just managed to do that. You know, there was definitely moments that were not fun. Um, there's moments that you're exhausted. Your, your hands are getting weird. Your feet hurt unimaginably. Um, I wasn't quite prepared. Like there was a handful of people that had done it before that I had communicated with and were really cool about offering advice. And they all told me like, there's going to be something that is just so uncomfortable, but you just have to ignore it. A guy named Tony Jenkins, he's a ski do rider um, for snowmobiles. He did um, he was on a team called the movie stars the year before. And he was really um, helpful in providing a lot of, you know, personal insight and he warned me he's like your feet some days are going to hurt so bad because you've done long days before but you haven't done this many in a row and your boots are just they're sweaty they're wet from river crossings no matter what you can't ever get them fully dry and your feet are just going to be miserable and i was like oh yeah i'm sure it'll i'm sure it'll be all right though i had one day there where i was sitting there like i pulled my boots off for the day and i was like dear yeah wow Tony was right my feet are falling apart and it's the stuff like that that you don't think of you know it's the you know we were really lucky we didn't have any like hand blister issues but you know I've heard of some people getting really bad blisters I've heard of you know obviously people end up with saddle sores things like that with all that I think we had just ridden so much we were actually pretty um I guess we we're probably all pretty calloused at that point but yeah, there's just a lot of discomfort, a lot of tired days and you just kind of have to keep digging and you really have to want it because if you don't want it bad enough, it's really easy to go, ah, oh, down that road is a warm bed and a meal and down that road is 60 more miles a single track in the dark. And which... Oh, I, I was going to say, which one are you going to choose at the end of a 200-mile day? And the choice is usually indicative of how much you want it so mindset yeah mindset totally
1: were you guys all running stock uh ktm headlights just curious
0: no we actually all went with the um baja design squadron
1: okay yeah
0: yeah so we all had those actually no dave and i had baja design squadrons and then larry had a trail tech um x2 i think and then we all had helmet lights, and we ran a really compact helmet light. I think the battery and the the LED helmet light itself was something like, I don't know, fourteen ounces or something. So real small, but I think uh, they each threw like twenty one hundred lumens.
1: Okay.
0: So those were a nice addition, um, especially you know some of the mornings you're starting at like four in the morning, and um, I like to run a helmet light because especially in this really tight stuff, you may just barely pass a weird trail intersection that's maybe coming into the trail behind you and you may not see it because of the angle if you're not able to turn your head and actually point your light to where you want to go and we actually watched a handful of teams before us leave get lost like on day one within the first 10 miles because they kept blowing past this one turn and I kept thinking how do they keep missing that it can't be that obscure right because it was so clear on google earth well, when I got to it, I realized um, you come out of a rise and you're pointed kind of to the to the right when you exit this one trail, and your turn actually is coming in at like an angle behind you. And if you go just a couple feet too far, you start following a goat trail, not the real trail. And without that ability to look around and get light to the sides of you, I feel like you're you're opening yourself up to a lot of opportunity to miss trail turnoffs. Um, especially at four in the morning. I mean, you're still just trying to be awake and process what little breakfast you were able to eat in the form of a protein bar or something. So
1: yeah, four in the morning, I'm, I'm looking for coffee.
0: (laughs) God, that was actually one of the things we missed the most. Yeah. Is you don't have time for coffee and where are you going to get it at four in the morning in lol, you know, there's no place to get coffee. So we had to get a little bit creative with that. Um. I think we actually packed caffeine tablets, and we're we're at least getting some caffeine in the morning that way, um but man, that first cup of coffee that we had felt so good, and it yeah, it was so good I think we um it was uh the morning of day ten in Wallace at the Ryan Hotel. Donna had coffee for us, and the last day is pretty short compared to the rest I say short it's still it was still nine hours of ride time. Um, but that was the shortest day of the tour and Donna actually was like, You know, you guys don't have to leave super early and you should really just sit down and have a cup of coffee and we're like, Okay. <laughs> and it was ma- magic. We hadn't had real coffee for since the tour started, so
1: What'd you think of Wallace?
0: Oh, it was such a cool town. Oh, I loved it. Actually, um, you know, again, you, you, you hear the stories, you do the research, you know, the Ryan hotel and Donna, and she's kind of been a part of the tour now for a while. Is that, um, that day nine to 10 transition point. And, um, you know, Dave had called her to make the reservation. And he, he told me that day, he's like, he's like, yeah, I don't know why, but just talking to her on the phone, like, she seems really cool. Like I want to meet her. And we, that was kind of like one of those, um, one of those those focal points like okay well all of day eight just focus on getting or sorry all of day nine just focus on getting to donna like we got to meet donna that's there's no option we got to get to donna like our gps waypoint for for wallace just had donna written on it like just get to donna and um it was just a cool town we had a great little meal at the brewery there donna and her husband were super accommodating um super nice people They've had this little hotel there now for like six or seven years. And and, um, the whole for if if people don't know what the city of Wallace is, the entire city is on the historical registry.
1: Yeah, it's amazing. So
0: they were it was going to get torn down to have a, a freeway bypass put in or something. And this one family actually put all this effort into getting the entire town put on the historical registry and it saved it. And now it's like this like thriving tourism destination which is really cool. But it's like a time warp. You get into it and you're like, "What year is it?" Other than the cars, you kind of wouldn't know the difference between now and if it was in the 50s.
1: Yeah, I remember I remember riding in there for the first time and I was dropping into town and what if they've got the water, I don't know if you would call them aqueducts or what, but a lot of them are right by people's houses. They have little bridges. Yeah. yeah. It's like, "Where where am I?" And then I got into town, it was Labor Day. And there was a heck of a party going on in town, and it was kind of unfortunate that I had to leave because that's yeah. a good spot to be on a holiday. Clearly, cool town.
0: Oh yeah, they were having some festival when we were there, so there was like street music and just just this hopping environment. Again, you've been in the mountains all day. You've been that you know that day we had been running these really narrow ridge lines for just miles until we dropped down into Wallace and. You don't see anything, and then all of a sudden it's like a a, part, a block party. You ride down into a town that is literally having a little block party. It was incredible.
1: Yep, sounds like good times. Um, would you do this again? Is there any reason that, that maybe you'd want to do it again?
0: Oh, okay, that, that that's a... Let me have you clarify that question. Knowing now what I know, would I try it again if I hadn't? Absolutely would I do it again now that I've done it once already? I don't feel a need to.
1: Okay.
0: mm I think that it's one of those things that, um, we got really lucky actually, even with a, a couple little mechanicals and a couple flat tires and, you know, incident bear spray, we actually had a really clean run, um, You know, we we did what we went there to do. And I I feel like in a way trying to recreate that you're just you're challenging some tour god somewhere (laughs) and I think you're tempting too much fate. So I probably wouldn't. Now, that being said, um, I do know of some finishers in those earlier finisher numbers um, from some years ago that have expressed interest in doing it again simply because it's changed so much. Mm hmm. Um, The tour now is not the tour of seven years ago, eight years ago, ten years ago. So if there was some reason, if there was some major difference or some, some new challenge, I could definitely consider it. Am I going to run and do it next year? No. Mm-mm. If anything, I want to go back and actually help the trail crews um, do some trail maintenance out there. I'd like to actually go back and just spend some time in all these places because that's the one disadvantage of the Tour of Idaho is you're so focused on making the miles every day and you have to keep to such a strict schedule. You actually miss a lot. You don't get to just stop and look around and enjoy the scenery as much as, as it really warrants given its grandeur. Um, You don't get to stop and, and hang out with the people as much and visit those locations as much as you'd like to. So we actually just want to go back and go riding and, sure. you, know, you know, give back a little bit. The, there's an incredible amount of work that goes into keeping that many miles of trail open. And a lot of those trails probably don't get ridden except for the Tour of Idaho um, you know, group, the people that are trying it, whether that be the T1, which is the official tour of Idaho, like you're trying to get a finisher number. But there's also a number of people that do what's called the T2. And that's just taking the route and going to and trying to ride it at your own pace, riding it over however many days you you choose to, riding parts of it even. Um, And without a lot of these people going out and doing this trail maintenance and cutting all the blow down and really keeping some of these trail systems alive, they disappear, so I, I definitely feel um, that a bit of service needs to be paid to give back to that. So we'll definitely be going back to recreate in the area for sure in the in the coming years. Um, probably the summer even is is the plan right now. So and to just go say thanks to some of these people that that made it happen. Like day three could have ended us. We were so exhausted, but the the, the amount of uh, the welcome environment of the people at the Smoky Bar and their willingness to just, hey, let's get you guys warm, let's get you guys fed, let's get you guys ready for tomorrow. That that saved us that day. And, you know, that not everybody does that anymore. So I really want to pay it forward with those people and, and go back and just enjoy some time without a goal or an agenda.
1: Okay, so... A lot of people, a lot of good riders have attempted the Tour of Idaho, and, and a lot of them have come up unsuccessful. You, on the other hand, you're able to conquer it. You survived the 10 days. I'm curious as to whether you feel a sense of accomplishment being the first woman to complete it, or if you see yourself as just another finisher.
0: Um, that, I don't know. That's something I definitely struggle with. Um, you know, in the type of racing I do, there actually, there isn't a lot of women that do it. So I'm just usually out there with the guys. So I'm just another rider. Um, that being said, um, when I started doing 24 hour events, there was no, almost no women that did it. And now there's actually whole iron women classes. There's, there's, you know exponentially more women in the area doing those type of events so I can't totally say though that there's no pride in being the first woman to do the tour of Idaho because I really do think that um, sometimes it just takes opening that gate by one person and other women feel empowered to be able to even try it or potentially finish it so I, I, I am just another rider out there you know my team was two guys it was just the three of us um, but there is some pride in being the first woman for sure, because I I hope that that you know gives other women some um, I don't know something to something to look up to like oh it is possible this is not it's not just this unattainable thing and no one's done it before um, so I think that you know as cheesy as it sounds um, I am very I'm I'm proud to act in that role if other people are are, are in. Inspired or moved to do something because of seeing my efforts.
1: I don't want to keep you too long, but you've you've been well, at it for you've been at it for quite a while. Riding, racing, uh, you know, twenty four hour events. You've been around. I think you were down at you go down to Glen Helen last year too.
0: Yeah, I did. Yeah, I went down to um, the Glen Helen twenty four hour endurance challenge in eighteen and uh, Ironman that event, which was pretty cool.
1: Okay, so I, I guess my question is: are, are you seeing growth in the sport in respect to women? Because from where I sit. And that's, you know, I don't get out and and race much or anything like that anymore. But from a social media perspective, it seems like there's more women out there riding. Are you seeing that in the flesh?
0: Absolutely. Um, I think, you know, I'm, you know, I do just, I do normal racing, if you want to call it normal, you know, hair scrambles, cross country events, things like that. GPs sometimes. I'm not a short distance rider, obviously. I thrive on 10 day events. But, um in, in more traditional formats of racing. Absolutely. I see a huge explosion in the number of women, you know, when I first started racing and I actually, I haven't been around that long. Um, I just started racing dirt bikes in 2010. Mm -hmm. I didn't start riding dirt bikes until 2005. So I came to this in my, my mid twenties, you know, so I learned how to ride a dirt bike as an adult um but just in that short time you know when i first started racing cross country there was not a lot of women um you could barely fill a class and sometimes you'd show up and you were the only one and so i just kind of adapted and i i just put myself up into the men's classes so i raced open am a little bit um when i do shorter distance stuff i race 250 amateur um but now you go to a, a gp and there's 20 30 women there and that's huge like that's And that's regionally. That's not even like at the national level. Um, With 24-hour racing, um, definitely, I don't know if the explosion has been that as as dramatic as as other formats. But, you know, there were some years where there was no other women competing in the Ironman class. And maybe one team of women competing in like the relay division. Um, You go to a 24 now and, you know, this year I actually, it was a, only a little while after the tour of idaho that the the starvation ridge 24 happened and so i just rode on a team with some of my friends and there was four or five women's teams there was um a couple of iron women racing and that just didn't used to happen a couple years ago there was an there was like six to eight women in the iron women's class plus a couple of women racing against the men that's kind of unheard of historically so it is i think increasing in the ultra side of things too um interestingly enough there was no there was no other women racing solo at glen helen last year um Mm -hmm. zero yeah it was it was it was actually a really good turnout too the funny thing about glen helen is it gets all the press and all the magazines and all the big teams but it's actually a pretty small event like the 24 hour up at starvation ridge in washington they see a 105 teams. Yeah. Um, Glenn Helen, I think, had 50 the year I did it, and 10 of those were Ironman. So, you know, much different class. Usually I'm racing against, you know, 30-plus guys at Starvation Ridge. But that being said, the people that are in that class are typically, like, top-level desert racers, um, some pro motocross racers. So you're racing against some pretty uh, high-caliber SoCal riders, um, even though the class is a little bit smaller. So that was a fun race. That That was a really good time.
1: Yeah, that looks like a would be a blast. I've always wanted to ride Glen Helen, but uh, getting older, I may never get down there. Who knows? <laughs> <laughs> um,
0: it was surprisingly brutal, I tell you that.
1: Yeah, I think um, it's tough to gauge it, obviously, on TV, Uh, Mm -hmm. Everyone says it's even steeper than it looks, which is interesting.
0: Absolutely true. Um, And then, of course, like, I've developed this reputation. Whenever I do a 24, it pours rain. It doesn't matter where it's at. So both of the ones at the ridge were mud years. And then we went down to Glen Helen. I don't think it had rained for something like nine months. And it started raining that night and didn't stop for 18 straight hours.
1: Yeah, it seems like so, you're wired for this kind of stuff. Oregon brought the rain. It was great. <laughs> yeah. They didn't
0: know what to do. They were so confused.
1: Yeah, if anybody's ever been to Starvation Ridge and it's uh, wet, that's about yeah. as bad as it gets, I think.
0: Yeah, axle-deep peanut butter. Yeah.
1: Um, one more question about uh, women. Mm-hmm. Like my girlfriend, for instance, getting into the sport, uh, learning how to ride, dual sport, so on and so forth. Any advice for for women like that who are jumping into this?
0: Yeah, I mean, um, one, uh, do whatever it takes. I know that when I first got into riding dirt bikes, there was this big kind of like, oh, don't ride a girl bike, or oh, you ride a girl bike. You know, ride whatever bike you want, set it up whatever way you want, um, use whatever gear you want. Don't let um, don't let social pressures, don't let expectations change your experience. Um, You know, I get a lot of flack for using a a recluse. Yeah, I don't care. I use a recluse. Do what you want to do to make your ride work for you. Um, Don't let, and I hate to say this, but don't let social media influence your decisions as much as some of us probably do sometimes. Um, Dirt biking is dirty. It's messy. And some days you fall. Every day isn't perfect. Um, We all have a learning curve. Um, It's really easy, I think, to look at a snapshot of um, people's experience, like say on something like Instagram, and for people to get discouraged because that's not how they see their experience or their experience isn't as perfect or as pretty or they can't nail that wheelie the first time or they can't get up that one trail. Um, That's a snippet. There's... There's so much more that goes into it. There's a lot more falling. Everybody falls. Everybody has those times. So don't get discouraged if it doesn't go perfect the first time. Um it takes it takes work, it takes effort, but it's it's so worth it because it's so much fun. Um but just don't be afraid to just be you and get out and ride and ride whatever bike you want and ride however you want and just go have fun with it. All right. Good That's advice. the best thing I can say, you know. It's really easy to look at perfect writers and go, Oh, I'm never gonna be that good, you know, and get discouraged. But you just gotta just just do by you and go have fun.
1: Yeah, uh social media is a, a weird thing. I'll I'll admit I haven't been uh haven't really been on it for maybe a month or so. I've just been too busy and mm-hmm. uh it's not the worst thing that I ever did. I'll say that.
0: Interesting. I'm I'm curious. I'm curious what your uh, perspective is on why that is.
1: Um, Hey, I've always thought, you know, I'm kind of immune to, you know, the things that people talk, you know, you're talking about uh, almost like an alternate reality where you only see Mm -hmm. the upside to someone's day or their ride or whatever. I've always thought I was kind of immune through that, immune to it, could wade through it. Mm -hmm. Um, But I think I found that I'm not. And you know, for instance, if I see somebody writing somewhere cool, I'm like, man, I wish I was out riding right now. And, um, you know, I found myself, you know, throughout time just scrolling through Instagram feed, looking at stuff mindlessly. And I don't think it's good for you. Um, and I, I think, I, rea- I, think yeah. I reaffirmed that this winter. Um, social media has always been a big part of what I do. And I've always been engaged with it. And I enjoy sharing Um, but, you know, I don't think it's a bad thing for me to take a step back either.
0: Yeah, I would agree. Um, you know, my approach with it, you know, and it is, it's somewhat of a necessary evil. You know, there are some really good parts to it. And then there are some, some parts of it that you need to be mindful of. Um, my, my approach to it has been to try to keep it, you know, authentic I think I posted. It's really funny, you know. You look at the stats on things, and you know, you post a picture, and you're all pretty, and everything's looking good that day, and you get all this feedback, and woo, yay, you look awesome. And I've thrown up some pictures on there of. I think one of them was um, a picture of me at Glen Helen at like three o'clock in the morning, and I look like a psychopath. I won't lie. I look (laughs) ridiculous. I am muddy. My hair is matted. I have this maniacal look on my face like I've just gone insane. But that was the reality of the situation. And that's what a good part of that type of racing looks like. It's dirty and you're miserable and you're wet and your lips are chapped and you look horrible. Um, There's another one from finishing the Starvation Ridge in 2014 that I put up my face is so swollen from windburn, I almost can't open my eyes and I look disgusting. But that's the reality of it. You know, some days everything looks great and some days the reality is is that the the result of the effort that you had to put in to do something was so great that it physically alters your appearance. And I think to hide that is to do a disservice to to some of the things that we go out and do on a dirt bike. I think if social media can stay real and people aren't afraid to put those images out there and to really portray what it truly is to finish a 24 and what you look like at the end of it, or like that that horrible picture that keeps popping up from the Tour of Idaho where I look like I have just been like tumbled down driveway i mean i look (laughs) horrible but it's the one picture that people keep posting places because they're like whoa look at carrie she finished the tour of idaho and it's the most horrible picture but it's reality and that people keep being drawn to that photo to me says that there is still an interest in in seeing something real
1: something real okay yeah so I i think that's good i think we get so much there's just a lot of um I don't know, you, you know, you edited photos and procured mm-hmm. this and that and uh Yeah. Yeah, it's or like some
0: people the, go out and they they just ride to get content. Yeah. That day. And if that's your thing and that's what you love to do and you wanna throw images out there of dirt bikes, cool. Um I'm not gonna say there's anything wrong with that. Um for me, since I have a uh a, a, you know, performance goal oftentimes. Going and getting content's awesome as long as it's not interrupting the purpose of the ride. And I think that's where some people can sometimes get stuck is that the content becomes more important than the experience. And I mean, the experience of being on a motorcycle is so amazing that it, it, I, I personally don't, I can't wrap my head around that, but um, I think that happens. I think people get caught up in showing people the experience instead of having the experience.
1: Yeah, I, I I've definitely been in those shoes, and I think I've reflected on some rides, and I've even asked people. You know, does is this detracting from what we used to do? Because before all this, all these smartphones, we'd go out and we'd go ride a hundred miles, and it was amazing, and there wasn't a photo. There was just bench racing after. And yeah, that was a, that was amazing. Now it seems like you, you're more prone to stopping and, and snapping a photo or two, but. Uh, easier for me to do like on the adventure bike when I go ride the dirt bike, it's, it's, I don't know. You just have a tendency to keep moving a little bit more.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And I, I just love riding so much. I, I'll get through a whole ride and realize I haven't taken a photo and I'm like, oh, I probably should have taken a picture of something <laughs> and I'm like, yeah, whatever. I had fun.
1: Yeah. I would I guess I would tell everybody don't feel obligated to do that, yeah. but, uh, to your point. Yeah. Make it genuine. Make it real.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, Last thing for me before we wrap this up on your Instagram profile dirt bike adventurer. So for you what's next <laughs> dirt bike adventurer?
0: Ah, uh, you know, back to that whole standing on Sundance Mountain going, what do I do now? I'm actually not entirely sure. I and this is something I've I've never I've actually never started a year not sure about what my exact goal was. And it's a really strange place. Um, I think that to a degree, though, that in my mind, that's a testament to um, what the Tour of Idaho ended up being for me. And I think what it ends up being for a lot of the finishers. Um, It's such a high notch on your, your personal belt that you're not sure what could top it, if that makes sense, or what could even match it in terms of experience. So I don't know right now. Um, that, that's a tough one. I don't know if I have an answer. If anyone has any ideas, I'd love to hear them. <laughs>
1: so. Well, yeah. From my perspective, it's probably going to be tough to, um, tough to top that. But I would throw out there any of these BDRs. Now, obviously, they're not going to be yeah. challenging, but um, fulfilling for sure. I would argue, yeah. argue. That and just seeing you know the landscapes and yeah. the in the backcountry. Pretty amazing that we can just plug these routes in and go ride, tip to toe. You know, in any state.
0: Yeah, yeah, I would agree with that. I think that, um, I think what what the tour of Idaho is going to do for me for a little bit is I am going to have to just change my mindset because I don't. The tour of Idaho is it's something that I don't think you can top, and you probably shouldn't try to top it because it is so unique. Um, a different adventure? Yeah, absolutely. Um, something will speak to me at some point. Um, you know, in the coming years, there, w- West Coast is not the only place that has 24 hour races. I'd love to go to the East Coast and do their 24 hour races. Um, I think that this year's probably not the year for that, but that's something that is on the bucket list for sure. Um, and yeah, I think getting out and experiencing some some more, you know, backcountry rides. I've, I've focused really heavily on doing races and events the last few years. And the tour of Idaho was actually—it's not a race; it's—it's it's this weird event, and it's a challenge, but it's not a race. Um, and I think that opened up some some new horizons in terms of just getting out and just trying some different things. Like you said, you know, some BDR or, you know, like you know, going out and actually helping contribute to the tour of Idaho in terms of riding out in the middle of nowhere and still having that fun, but you know, taking a saw and doing trail work and maybe really using that platform to, to help show people how much of that we actually do need. We do need more people to go out and, and give back and help with trails and, and advocate for those trails. So, um, more adventures to come. I don't, just don't know if I can articulate them right now and they're probably going to be a little bit different than what I've done so far.
1: All right. So we'll stay tuned for that. Last question. Sponsors who helped you, uh, who's been helping you out? Who helped you get through the tour?
0: Ah. Uh, so there, there's, there is a handful of people that I have to give some props to. Um, obviously, um, I ride for climb and I've worked with them for a number of years now. They were amazing. Um, I have to give a huge shout out to Mark and cart. He actually came to the start of the tour of Idaho the night before we went down to, um, Malad and, uh, took the team out to dinner and just, you know, talked with us and told some stories and kind of helped get us pumped up. And, um, They've been an amazing company. They helped get us outfitted. Um, Harold and Ryan at Giant Loop. Um, So I cold called Ryan on the phone one day. I didn't know them at all. And I just, I called up the adventure shop and I said, so, hey, this is who I am and this is what I want to do. Would you like to come on this adventure with me or something cheesy like that? (laughs) And Ryan was like, um, hold on a second. I'll call you back. And I'm like, oh, I just got. I totally just got blown off. And then he calls back. He's like, hey, I just talked to Harold. Yeah, we want you to come over and and talk with us about about what you're going to do. And so the guys at Giant Loop got us all set up with bags, Mojave bags and gas bags and and really just went through setup with us and and got us geared up in that way. Um, Kate's Real Food. Oh, man, those bars, we ate them for breakfast every morning. Um, Pro tip, a case of Kate's Real Food bars fits perfectly in a Climb tool pack. Good to know. Uh, very yeah, it's it's amazing. So uh, Kate's Real Food helped us out there a bit. Seat Concepts. Um,
1: oh yeah.
0: You're spending a lot of time on your bike, and uh, the boys at Seat Concepts put together a really really nice seat. Um, so can't thank them enough. Um, Cycle by, um, one of the local shops here helped get us outfitted with a lot of different products that we needed. Um, there was a lot that went into this and it was it was very appreciated. Um, parts from, you know, Recluse, uh, Fast Company, we all run Fast Company bars, um, the Flex bars. They're really helpful in terms of fatigue reduction. Um, and a lot of those companies I've worked with for the majority of my racing career. So um, I appreciate that they uh, stuck with me and, and uh, believed in the Tour of Idaho thing because it is a little bit different. It's not a race. It's kind of just this other weird niche event. So, um, all those companies that I've worked with for, for so long was really handy. Um, PCI race radios actually helped get us set up with communication as well. So that was, um, a big help. Um, it's really important to have good radio communication when you're out on the tour route. Um, without that, we would have had much longer days than we did. Um, but with that, With that radio system, we were able to communicate much easier, which was nice. I'm trying to think of anybody else who I need to give a shout out to. Oh, the boys at Oxbow—I already talked about their lights a little bit. Mm -hmm. Um, They were super helpful. Um, Also, uh, uh, my friend Jill Hamilton, owner of Pedal Power, she actually um, makes um, products for uh, female-specific products for cycling, which actually I utilized a bit. Um, in terms of um, like anti-chafing and things like that so she makes natural products um, for uh, chafe reduction um, which is again not one of those pretty parts of the tour of Idaho but uh, I, I believe in real it's reality so you got you gotta you gotta talk about it. Yeah, so those are the big ones. those are the companies that really stepped up and believed in us and, and helped us get us get us geared up and it's really cool because you know, the guys from Climb even you know, when we would have cell service, they'd like send me a text message every now and then, like, "Hey, good job. We're watching your beacon. Keep going. You got this." And um, I feel like that personal connection to a company is not what most people get to experience. And I really appreciate how much those companies really vested in the effort and um, supported us for sure.
1: Yeah, that's cool. And and you know, to kind of piggyback that. Yeah, most of us don't get to interact with, with the uh, the vendors. I've been yeah. really fortunate. You know, Giant Loop, nicest people I've met in the industry, super helpful. Yeah, definitely. Um, yeah, I mean, that that goes a long way. So, guys, make sure you're supporting uh, some of these brands that she's talking about here for sure.
0: Absolutely. And actually, Giant Loop just um, they hosted the Ben Garage Nights uh, just a couple weeks ago. And they actually had me come in and... We, you know, they have a big, you know, a thing every month that they do at different uh, businesses in Bend and Giant Loop brought me in and we talked about the tour. We showed pictures. We had, um, you know, a group of people there, food, beer. And um, it was really cool that they they host events like that, you know, not just supporting riders, not just supporting the industry, but really creating opportunities for people to come together and talk about their riding experience. And I don't think enough enough of that happens one-on-one face-to-face and so thanks to them for providing that opportunity to talk to so many people about the tour of idaho and our experience on it that was a really cool event
1: yeah you don't you don't see that every day you don't see you Mm -hmm. don't see that hardly at all Uh,
0: yeah helps make the community a lot better for sure
1: yeah definitely we need that um any parting shots or is that it i want to thank you for coming on the show
0: Oh, thanks uh, for having me. Um, yeah,
1: you now own the uh, dubious honor of having the longest podcast
0: for sure. with God. <laughs> somehow, like, man, everything, 24 hours, tour of Idaho's, I, I'm fitting. all about endurance, I guess. I guess it's, it's fitting. fitting. Yeah. yeah. No, I appreciate you having me on. Um You know, if you're interested in checking out more information about the Tour of Idaho, um, Martin Hackworth has a web page and a Facebook page. So the web page is www.motorcyclejazz.com and he has all of the information there about the different Tour of Idaho challenges, especially the T1, which is the big one. Um, So check it out. And there's also a Tour of Idaho Facebook page where people talk about, um, you know, preparation and their, you know, finishing reports and things like that. So if if anyone wants more information, you can go to those resources and check it out and uh, kind of see what this whole thing is all about.
1: All right, Carrie. I want to thank awesome. you again for coming on. And, uh, yeah, thanks, John. Best of luck wherever uh, the next ride takes you.
0: Awesome. Thanks a lot.
1: No, thank you, Carrie. I'm a, I'm a big fan, and it was really cool that we were able to get together and, and share this story with the listeners. I'm sure that they're going to love it. And listeners, if you need more of Carrie, jump on Instagram, at carrie156i or just search carrie barton and you will inevitably find her feed one more time carrie thanks for coming on the podcast i really appreciate it and uh, best of luck wherever that next uh, dirt bike adventure takes you listeners i always appreciate your support and i always ask for one thing and one thing only please rate review and subscribe to our podcast since i released our last podcast I think we picked up about 20 ratings, but not a lot of reviews. But again, if you get a moment, please rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast on iTunes. I've got more podcasts coming out this week. The next will be with uh, at Dual Sport Advocate on Instagram, which was a really great episode. But again, if you could just do that for us, I would really appreciate it. And uh, yeah, you know, this was a long podcast. Carrie does now hold the trophy for longest episodes, so... I think I'm going to cut out of here, and uh, we'll release another episode for you all on Thursday. Until then, again, Happy New Year. Take care, and I hope you guys get out there and uh, really enjoy uh, 2020 and riding or whatever your passions are. So one more time, thanks for listening, and uh, we'll catch you next time.